I'm hoping my voice lasts out for this, and I'm sorry if it's a bit raspy, but it's better than it was when I got up this morning. So I practiced on the first service, so now we'll see if it'll come out okay. But thanks for being here. It's nice to see you this morning. Last week, uh, Pastor Allen spoke on part one of the parable of the prodigal son. Parable simply being a story. Jesus would tell a simpler story to illustrate a deeper truth so that he would be sure that the people would understand. And uh, prodigal, you remember the description of that was somebody who was extravagantly wasteful. And so this is a parable of the prodigal son. And his message last week helped us to get a glimpse of the very loving father that God is and how he dealt with a wayward son. So I've been asked this morning to preach to you part two of the same parable, hoping that it will help us all to get a glimpse of the condition of the heart of man separated from God the Father, whether we have never entered into a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ or whether we have at one time done so and strayed away from him, uh, walked away from that relationship. You'll remember that Jesus is telling this story to an audience made up of two different kinds of groups. The first group were the publicans or tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus attracted these people somehow. They were drawn to him. They, um, you might know a tax collector who's not a terrible bloke, just don't particularly like to pay taxes, but the the tax collectors in Jesus' time were very, very different. The tax collectors of Jesus' time had a franchise with the Roman government, and they would uh, collect taxes for Rome, pay the taxes to Rome, and Rome was happy as long as they got what was owing to them. But these tax collectors never ended it there. They always collected more than what they were entitled to and kept the rest for themselves. And they were very hard at doing that. Whether people could afford it or not, they would squeeze the very last coins out of them. And so they were hated. And we always hear the the publicans and sinners. Um, That's because uh, the, the group that used to hang around with the tax collectors, a lot of them were the enforcers. The ones, the tax collectors didn't dirty their hands. They collected the money, but they sent out their enforcers to make sure that the money got paid, and the people were terrified of them. They were like thugs, uh, gangbangers, whatever. And they were just, uh, they were a hated lot, the tax collectors and the, and the sinners. And, but these people, as I said, were strangely drawn to Jesus, and perhaps because he didn't, judge them. He didn't come down on them. He would sit and talk with them and have fellowship with them. And the other group was quite different. The other group was made up of Pharisees and scribes. Now, they were the religious intelligentsia. They were the ones who uh, broke their arms, just patting themselves on the back for how good they were all the time. They kept the law of Moses every every crossed a T and every dotted I, they made sure that they did everything that was absolutely right and that they were just perfect in God's eyes as that's what they saw. They saw God as a a harsh person, a harsh God, somebody that they would be afraid of. And so they very carefully made sure that they just did everything the way it was supposed to be done. They hated sinners. They uh, whenever there was publican, whenever there was publicans and sinners around, though these people, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, were there also, not because they wanted to listen to Jesus, because they were interested in what he said, 
but they wanted to be there to try and trip him up if he said something that they felt they could use against him. They didn't understand him. He was a rabbi, a teacher of the law, and yet the things that he taught, they they put in question, and certainly the fact that he ate and fellowshiped with sinners. That was just unheard of. They would never, ever have done anything like that. They were too good to be doing that. And so they just didn't get it. They didn't get that the reason Jesus fellowshiped with these publicans and sinners was so that he could demonstrate to them and tell them about the love of God and, and what a loving God that they, they could serve. And so that's what drew them, that he genuinely cared about them. And, uh, and so, you know, these Pharisees were even so harsh that they used to say that, well, it's recorded in the gospel that Jesus was uh, sent by Beelzebub, got his power by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, how they could think that when all he did was go around doing good, healing the sick, raising the dead, and yet they just wanted to always point a finger at him and, and what he was doing and what he was doing wrong. And by seeing him eating and fellowshipping with publicans and sinners, what that meant was that he was just like them. And so how could this man, apparently a rabbi and a teacher of the law, how could he fellowship with sinners? It just meant he was just like them, so he was not to be listened to or paid attention to. And yet Jesus came to earth for the very purpose of demonstrating in everything that he did the love of God. I always tell my boot camp kids how uh, it's essential to study the Scripture so they can follow Jesus around the pages of Scripture and see what he was like and to get a a picture of what God the Father is like. So Jesus was being attacked by them once again for cozying up to sinners. And so he gave them three parables in, in Luke chapter 15 to give them some insight into the actual heart of God, what the heart of God is really like. Luke chapter 15 could very well have had the words lost and found at the top of it because that was what this whole chapter is about. He tells three parables in this one chapter, so obviously when he's talking to these two groups of people, he uses three different stories to try and help them somehow to understand uh, what it is he's trying to convey to them. The first one was the parable of the lost sheep. There was a hundred sheep, and uh, 99 of them were safe, and one wandered away from the fold. And so Jesus made sure the 99 were safe in the fold, and he went out after uh, after the, the, or the shepherd went up after the sheep, the one that was lost, and said that he went until he found, he searched for it until he found it. I mean, he had 99 others, but he's trying to demonstrate how important the life of one, the worth of one is to God. And so he went and he found the sheep, and then he took it, and, and there's a picture I know I've seen, or a, a, a little plaque or something where you see the good shepherd with the sheep around his shoulders. You see his, the legs on one side and the other and it's straddled around his shoulders. And just lovingly taking this little sheep who was obviously very distraught back to the fold. The second one, the second parable was about a, about a woman who had ten coins. Obviously very precious to her. Maybe her life savings, who knows. Uh, it's thought that she probably wore it in a little pouch that she could wear around her neck underneath her top clothes and to make sure it was safe. But one time, maybe, I don't know, maybe she had it out counting it, and one got lost, and she searched and searched until she found that one coin. 
And uh, it said, you know, she was their, their houses back then, there was probably no window in this one, so she lit a candle to go and see if she could find it. And they had dirt floors, so it said she swept the floors to try and uncover this coin, and eventually she found it. And so lost and found. But the third parable of the lost son has been described by Charles Dickens, who is one of the greatest literary geniuses of our time, as one of the greatest, or as the greatest story ever written, short story ever written. Let's be reminded of the characters in this story. There's a father who is obviously a very wealthy man and two sons. It opens with the younger son approaching his father and saying, Give me the share of the estate. Now, he would have been in trouble if he had said that to my grandmother because she had a saying, Gimme's never get. And she meant it. And the Pharisees would have been speechless at this time and probably gasping for breath as they heard the beginning of this story. Why? Because it was as though he was saying to his father, I don't want to wait until you're dead. I want my inheritance and I want it now. Now, what was so scandalous about this? Well, the culture of the Middle East, even to today, is a culture of honor. Uh, sons honored their fathers, as the Ten Commandments demand. By saying what he did, he was dishonoring his father, dishonoring his family name. His father could have taken him to the town square and had him flogged, or perhaps worse. We've even heard about this in our own country in recent years. Um, honor killings, it's called. There was honor, great honor involved with the family name. And even if this young man had not gone away and wasted all of his money and associated with the worst of sinners, this alone, this act of demanding this from his father, was so shameful that it, it was enough to give us a picture of what this young man was. He showed he was selfish, showed he was uh, prideful, the condition of his heart. It was all about him all about what he was entitled to. Actually, very much like what is seen in our society today, a sense of entitlement. That person has it, I want it too. doesn't matter if you have to work harder for it or as hard for it. I just, I want what I want, and I want it now. If they've got it, I should be able to have it. And this is outrageous thinking. I mean, just outrageous. I'm sure the Pharisees were leaning closer at this time, waiting to hear the punishment that was going to be meted out to this for this shameful behavior. To their amazement, Jesus indicates that the Father let the Son have his way. He divided up the estate according to law. That would be one-third to the younger son and two-thirds to the older son. And, but even one-third of the estate would have been massive because this fellow was, this father was very, very wealthy. He obviously had livestock and buildings and land and, and uh, just had amassed great wealth, probably over many, many years and perhaps handed down from his fathers and his fathers before that and built every year until it was where it was that day. Now, the father might have made a suggestion to the son. He might have suggested, which was not unreasonable, that the son, that he would get his two-thirds share, but then he would take it and he would manage it and see what he could do with it, you know, get kind of experience with dealing with these things. But the son wanted none of that. He wanted the money. He had a plan. He didn't want any responsibility. He didn't want any accountability. He didn't want his father looking over his shoulder telling him how he should manage this thing. 
He wanted the money, and that was the bottom line. The ladies in our church have watched from time to time a series called The Bad Girls of the Bible. And it was the bad girls of the Bible and the slightly bad girls of the Bible and the really bad girls of the Bible. And I think there's even one that's the really, really bad girls of the Bible. But I always wondered why there's not one about the men, the bad men of the Bible. And I have a feeling that if this young man had been, if we had had such a series, this young man would have been there. Uh, one of the baddest boys that there are named. Uh, just for the shameless way that he treated his father in a, in a time when he should have been honoring him and showing his pride and, and, and his uh, lack of respect. Verse 13 of chapter 15 tells us that not long after this, so not long after the father agrees to give him, you know, divide up the estate and give it to him, not long after that, um, it says the younger son got together all he had. Now, what this actually means is he didn't want the stuff. He didn't want the livestock, didn't want the land, didn't want the buildings, his share of them. He wanted cash. Uh, he didn't want to have to do anything with those things, be responsible for them. So I can imagine that there was probably one of the biggest estate sales that that district had ever seen because he wanted to liquidate it and get the money. And there's always people looking for a bargain, and so he would have had to probably let it go at bargain prices if he was going to, in such a short time, uh, liquidate and, and have the money that he wanted. He didn't want to hang around. So he took what he had gotten from the people around, and I'm sure the villages and towns had gotten known very fast that he was liquidating everything, and he took the cash that he could get out of it, not caring that what it had taken for years for his father to build up, but rather just give me, give me. And then in the scripture says he set off for a distant country, undoubtedly a Gentile country, where he wouldn't have to worry about running into any of the Mosaic laws, any of the restrictions and freedoms that he would, would hurt him so very much as his plan was to just do his own thing, where he wouldn't be close to the watchful eye of his father, and uh, it says, we're told that in a very, very short time, he squandered his wealth in wild living. We aren't given details. We can use our imagination. A young man in a new place flashing his wealth around. Um, I thought that, you know, maybe he would have had in mind that in this far country, he could have maybe started up a business, opened a McDavid's or something like that in a nearby town. But no, he didn't want that kind of responsibility. He didn't want to have anything like that. He just wanted to spend his money. Now, needless to say, he found out during that time he had lots of friends, or at least he thought they were friends, because you can always find somebody that will help you spend your money. And uh, wine, women, and song were the order of the day. And this went on for a little bit, but soon his money ran out, of course. Not surprisingly, his friends ran out also. And if that wasn't bad enough, the scripture tells us that after his money ran out, that a severe famine hit that country. Now, I've learned that severe famine in the Middle East is nothing like we would ever know here. Uh, several years ago, I was traveling up in Alberta, visiting a friend, and uh, they hadn't had any rain up there. And it was, it was difficult to look at the 
the livestock out in the fields where there was no grass and no green grass and stuff, just a lot of mud. And and uh, I felt really badly. I mean, I, it's not the way it should be. And then the Western farmers got together, a lot of them, and, and started shipping hay over to them to help them out. But it's nothing like what they would have suffered in the Middle East in, in a time of severe famine. And I read things that I wouldn't even relate to you this morning that people had to do in order to just try and survive. And in the middle of all this, famine, as if it couldn't get worse, is our bad boy. Jesus then goes on to show us in this story three steps that this young man had to go through in order to return to a right relationship with the Father. Step number one, he obviously had to hit rock bottom. Had to be brought to a place where the only place to look was up. Starving to death, literally. Our young man, instead of giving in, tries one more tactic. Tries to hire himself out to a citizen of that far land who sent him in his fields to feed pigs. Now this was definitely hitting rock bottom. This was the final humiliation for a Jew to be found feeding pigs. By Old Testament law, Jews were forbidden to eat pigs or own pigs. It suggested that he agreed to do this with the hope that he could share the pigs' food. Verse 16 says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And I just tell you, young people, so you don't get confused, these were not iPods or anything like that. These were almost like large bean pods, uh, much larger than a normal bean would be and, and thicker. And, and they grew on, they were on from a carob bush or carob tree. And when you opened them up, there was a molasses kind of uh, substance in them that would be taken out to be used to help with cooking or whatever. And then the pods, the empty pods, were thrown to the pigs and uh, part of the pig slop. Now, I have a pretty good imagination, and it tells me that when those slops were thrown to the pigs, those pods were thrown to the pigs in the pens, our young man would have been no match at all for those pigs who would have pushed him, trampled him under their feet, or crushed his emaciated frame uh, as they vied for best spot at the supper table. Now don't forget, they'd be hungry. There was a famine in the land and probably their own food was cut down. People would be eating more of not just throwing out stuff that at one time maybe they would have thrown out. And so you can imagine that there was not going to be something that they were going to share. It was a matter of every pig for himself. So here we see this young man raised in a home of great wealth and great feasting, resorting to trying to get the slops of pigs. He had definitely come to a place of hitting rock bottom. Perhaps it comes a little clearer to us now why the father let his son have his freedom. He undoubtedly knew his son very well and perhaps could guess what might have happened. Sometimes the best thing a parent can do is to let his son or daughter experience consequences, to exercise some tough love, no consequences, no learning. We're being shown by this parable that God many times teaches us by allowing us to experience the consequences of our bad actions. 
And as in this situation, it doesn't end up a very pretty picture. But know this, that God's will is always for our best and for our our well-being. He knows best. It's good to learn to do life his way. Proverbs 3, 6 tells us, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Perhaps someone here this morning has hit rock bottom. Maybe your finances are a wreck. Maybe your career is not going the way you thought that it might. Maybe there is a disintegration of family relationships or friends. Or perhaps you've been experiencing health problems or depression or confusing. You need to know this this morning. God the Father loves you and perhaps has allowed some of you to hit rock bottom to bring you to a place where you actually will reach up to him. If that is so, then I truly pray that this is a day when you're ready to come to your senses. Step number two is reflection. He's saying, I know better than this. Verse 17 tells us this. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here am I starving to death. I think he realized at this point by what that verse says that uh, his father was a pretty generous man. The, he would have slaves, but slaves were taken care of with the household. They were part of the household every day. Hired men were ones that you might find in the town square, ones that would uh, be lined up to, to see if there was any work for them that day. And if it was seasonal, that was great. They might be taken on for the whole of the harvest, or maybe it would just be an event, but it didn't matter. They needed something, and so they were there to take what they could get. So he's talking here about his father's hired men have food to spare, This father of his wasn't one that just gave what he had to. He gave more than he had to. It's a picture of just a loving, generous person. And this boy sitting in the pig pen has come to his senses as though everything he's been doing has been insanity. And it has been. It has been. He's just been blinded by his pride and his selfishness. And so he's at the end of himself. And this brings him to his senses. He started thinking about what life was like when he was with the father. He ate well. He dressed well. He was respected. His needs were met. He had responsibilities. And he cries out in despair, What am I doing here? My father's hired men have food to spare. What am I doing here? And he has to come to this realization before he can go on any further. So first he had to come to the place where he hit rock bottom. And now he's coming to a place of reflection, saying, I don't have to live like this. Why am I living like this? I know better than this. And here I am, starving to death. In this parable, Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the publicans and the sinners, how much God loves us. He wants us to know how much he values us and that no one can take your place in his heart. He never revealed God as a judge or a dictator or a slave master or a boss. 
The view amongst the Pharisees and sinners was that God hated sinners. But Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save those who are lost. Why was Jesus spending time with sinners? To demonstrate to them and to the self-righteous Pharisees that God loves them and that they could have a relationship with him. They could have intimate relationship with him. And once you understand this truth, uh, it can radically change your relationship with God. Lack of understanding of God is uh, a great hindrance to experiencing intimacy with him. Now, step number three. He's hit rock bottom, and now he's had a time of reflection. And now, in order to come into a right relationship with God, the next step is repentance. In verse 18, we hear the son saying, I will go back, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This was an acknowledgement that this wasn't just a sin against his father. This was a sin against God. And every sin is a sin against God. Uh, David, after he sinned with Bathsheba and all the, the things that surrounded that, when he came to a place of repentance, uh, got before God and he said, God, it's, it's you and you only that I've sinned against. Because that's where it all flows from. That God has given us direction on how he wants us to live. And we choose to go our own way. And there comes a time where we have to acknowledge that our sin is against God. And so he acknowledges this. And he says, uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you. This is what he's going to tell his father. He's he's rehearsing his speech uh, that he's going to be able to say to, to him. And so we have him coming to a place of repentance. The best place to be is with your heavenly Father and to say you're sorry. If you're in that situation this morning and you need to, you need to go to him. And you need to, to just get back in touch with him. Don't settle for anything other than genuine intimacy with him, a relationship with him, and experience the joy that he wants you to experience. Maybe nothing to you is obviously wrong, but you have an unsettled feeling in your heart that something is not right because you have something between you and God that that relationship isn't there. And what you need to do is you need to learn to put every activity and every relationship on hold until your relationship with the Father is what it should be. The most difficult words for any humans to say are, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, I've let you down, I have failed, or just plain help. Why is that? Because of pride, fear of consequences, fear of rejection. Of course, you'll remember in the parable that when the son did go home, he was overwhelmed by the love of the father. He didn't deserve forgiveness, but it was lavished upon him. That's grace. 
His father didn't take him on as a hired man, as the son was going to suggest. As a matter of fact, the son couldn't even get all of his speech out that he had rehearsed because the father just threw his arms around him and lavished him with kisses. And it suggested in here, it isn't like that one kiss on each side of the face, that he just kept lavishing him with kisses. He was so thrilled that his son had come home and had found his way back to the father. And don't forget, this is to give us a picture of what God is. Have you ever pictured God as being like that? We come to him when we've messed up and we're just so afraid of what's going to happen or of judgment. And instead, you know, we need to get this picture of him as just lavishing us with kisses, that he just loves us and he's so happy that we're home. When the boy came down the road with his filthy rags, uh, the father ran out to meet him and greet him, and he covered up those filthy rags with a robe and gave him a ring, put a signet ring on his finger. This signified sonship. He would have come back to the father in bare feet. That's like a slave where the father got sandals and put them on him. He was completely restored, completely restored. It's a beautiful picture. The Bible tells us all our righteousness is like filthy rags, but that when we come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, that we are clothed in the robe of his righteousness. In other words, when God sees us, when he looks at us, and our sins have been taken care of by the cross, we've acknowledged our sin and have come to Jesus and asked forgiveness. Uh, it's when God sees us after that, he doesn't see us. He sees a robe of white on us, Christ's righteousness. No sin, nothing that we've ever done. It's all gone. It's, it's completely gone. He was completely restored. And it's because of his great, God's great love for us. When I hear the story of the prodigal son, I can't always help but think about my mother. She was brought up in a godly home. She was taken to Sunday school like a lot of you were. Went to church with her parents during her growing up years. But late in her teens, she decided to go her own way. And she found herself in a mess of trouble. Thankfully, eventually, she came to her senses too. And she asked for forgiveness and was restored to a right relationship with her Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. After that, she lived a life of faithful service to him. What gave her the most delight was to tell other people about Jesus and his love, to see them come to know him. And she was the kind of person that some people kind of try to avoid sometimes because you know how it is, you're on the bus stop and you never make eye contact with that person because you're not trying to engage them in a conversation. Well, my mom would have been the one that tried to look you in the eye and and get you to look so she could start a conversation. And you could be sure that sometime or other, if she wasn't just helping you out, if she thought you, she needed that, you needed that, she would be telling you about Jesus. That was her greatest delight. Along with her will, she included instructions with respect to her funeral. She had a favorite hymn she wanted to have sung, and the title of it was also carved onto her gravestone. The song is called Love Lifted Me, and the first verse and chorus go like this. And this was her testimony. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. 
But the master of the seas heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. And the chorus goes, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. And those words, love lifted me, are imprinted on her gravestone. It's a wonderful testimony because she knew that she needed to be in fellowship with the Father. She never could pat herself on the back and say, you know, I've I'm always done right. I went to Sunday school. I went to church. I, I worked with this group or that group, and that makes me who I'm. That, that has nothing to do with it. That should be a result of your relationship with God, not evidence of it. It's, it's important that we serve God, but serving him is no replacement for just loving him and for um, having that wonderful, intimate relationship with him. If you were to go back and read the whole of Luke 15, including all three of the lost and found parables, and in each instance, at the end of it, we see rejoicing. When the shepherd found his sheep, we are told that he put it on his shoulders and brought it home, and there he called his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. When the woman found her lost coin, she called her friends and neighbors together and said, Rejoice with me. And the third parable of the lost son, we find the father having a huge celebratory feast, killing the fatted calf, inviting all the friends and neighbors around. And we're told that in the same way, when even one person comes to know Jesus, repents, and, and comes to know Christ, that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God when just one sinner repents. That's how much God loves you. You know what it says that in the presence of the angels of God, we're talking about heaven here, and the meaning is that God, our Heavenly Father, who is it's Him that's doing the rejoicing. You know, the angels don't understand redemption. They don't understand what it means to be saved. They're created beings who do, they're messengers for the Father. They do the things that the Father tells them to do. And they don't understand salvation. I'm sure they never understood why Jesus, the crown prince of heaven, took off his royal robes and went down to earth, a fallen earth, where people didn't care about him, ended up crucifying him. And I'm sure they never understood it because they've never understood sin or the need for redemption. But the reason there would be rejoicing is because they would have rejoiced along with the Father. They saw what made the Father's heart glad. And what made the Father's heart glad is when you or anybody else comes to faith in Him or is restored to faith in Him. And, you know, you sort of maybe get the idea of God. I don't know if you think of God very much, but... Maybe you get the idea of, you know, if a sinner comes home and he's God's in heaven on his throne and he's happy that somebody has come to faith. But it's so much more than that. I get a picture from all three of these parables that God rejoices. He's, there's, there's a celebration in heaven. And that must mean that heaven must be a place just full of joy all the time because there's always somebody coming to know Jesus as faithful people go out and, and witness to, to others and tell them about Jesus today on a Sunday. Perhaps throughout this whole land and around the world, there's people who are hearing for the first time about the love of Christ. 
and how God loves them and how he's made provision for them to come into relationship with him. And so uh, you can imagine that heaven today and every day is just a place of joy. And I think it's neat that Zephaniah tells us that God rejoices over us with singing. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God rejoices over us, with, over you with singing. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. What an, what an amazing word, that rejoicing. It's just, it's powerful. And what amazing, amazing God we have. His plan is all about evangelism. Finding lost children and bringing them to repentance. So much so that he sent his one and only son to die on a cruel cross and take the punishment we deserve so that we may be restored to a right relationship with him. There's a story told about a man who was on a bright sunny morning in 18th century London. His name was Robert Robinson and his mood was anything but sunny. All along the street there were people hurrying off to church, but in the midst of the crowd Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he had set foot in a church, years of wandering, of disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Suddenly, Robinson heard the clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. Turning, he lifted his hand to hail the driver, but then he saw that the cab was already occupied by a young woman dressed in finery for the Lord's Day. He waved the driver on, but the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to stop. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you, she said to Robinson. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline, and then he paused. Yes, he said, at last, I'm going to church. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. There was a flash of recognition when he gave his name. There's, that's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of inspirational verse, opened it to a ribbon-marked bookmark, and handed the book to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could this be? He responded, yes, ma'am, I'm the unhappy man who wrote that hymn when I was 22 years old, and I would give a thousand words, worlds if I could have them back to enjoy the feeling I had then. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words he was reading. They were words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of the faith, familiar to generations of Christians. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words, and I've lived these words. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. 
The woman suddenly understood. You also wrote, she said, take my heart. Oh, take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God and walked with him the rest of his days. It's not too late for you. I truly believe that Jesus is coming soon, but until he comes, we need to be walking in fellowship with him. We need to be seeking to know him more and more every day as we get into his word and we talk to him in prayer. We need to see God not as a harsh judge or somebody who's just out there waiting for you to fail so he can pounce on you, but a loving God, one who loved you so much he sent his only son to earth to redeem you, to pay for you, to buy you back to himself. And I can tell you that until you find him, you will, there's something in you. You've got this God uh, form in your, in your self that only he can fill. There's a void there, and only he can fill that. And until you're in relationship with him, until you're back in relationship with him, uh, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never have that complete satisfaction of, of, of just feeling that things are right. And so I encourage you this morning, uh, as the service comes to a close, I just encourage you. I thank God for his faithfulness, and I thank him that his Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those that need to hear this. I can't do that. I'm just a spokesperson this morning. But I pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will speak to your heart and let you know how much God the Father wants you back needs you to be walking with him, wants to, wants to walk with you through the storms of life and, and, uh, and be the father, the loving father that he wants to be. Let there be rejoicing this morning as you come to a realization that maybe you haven't hit rock bottom, but things aren't where they should be. And God, I need you. I need to be back in fellowship with you. I need a relationship with you. So I trust because I know how, how faithful the Holy Spirit is that if there are those that need to hear this message, that he'll be tugging at your heart this morning and just saying, come on back, come to me, and, uh, and let's restore this relationship that I want to have. Will you stand with me, please? And let's pray. Father, I thank you for every individual that's here this morning. Only you know hearts. Only you know where people have been or come from. Only you know the things that they're struggling with. But God, above all else, we know that you care intimately for each and every one and long to have them back in fellowship with you. Thank you for these stories that we've heard that just reinforce your love for us, that you desire when someone is lost, to see them back in the Father's company and in his arms, and how that you just are waiting for that to happen, and how there will be rejoicing when it does. So God, I just pray right now that you will just stir hearts of people that need, all of us, Lord, need to be in closer fellowship with you, and help us, Lord, to just make that our goal for the week ahead that we would spend the time with you and say the I'm sorry's or I need you or just plain help. 
and restore people to the place of fellowship that they should be in with you. And we thank you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, now I pray that you would just go with each one. Bless them, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Dismissed.